The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. how to eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. It's important to have role models. We think of them as people who are older and wiser, but the older I get, the more role models I have who are younger than me, but they're lights on my path just the same. Two of them are our guests for this hour. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, and very grateful that you're listening to our final 2019 episode of the Main Street Vegan Program. We'll be back with new live shows starting January 8th. Now, our theme for December has been Vegans Influencing the Larger World, and today's guests are doing that in spades. After the break, we'll talk with the joyful vegan, Colleen Patrick-Goudreau. And right now, it is my pleasure to introduce celebrated yoga teacher and impassioned activist, Sean Korn. Sean went vegetarian in 1985 and has been full-on vegan since 2010. She's the co-founder of Off the Mat Into the World and is also the author of a brand new and absolutely enchanting book. Oh my gosh, I can't help myself when a book gets me all excited. I just get gaga. It is called Revolution of the Soul, Awaken to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. Welcome, Sean Korn. Thank you so much. I'm, it's, I'm a, it's a joy to be speaking on your program. Oh, uh, I, that means so, so much to me because I have admired your work for the longest time. I've had, gosh, back in the CD era... <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of things, getting your yogic wisdom. So it's wonderful to finally be speaking voice to voice. So one of the reasons that I love your book so much is that it tells stories. And you start back in the 1980s on the kind of mean streets of the East Village of New York City. So please, can you just uh, give a little intro to our listeners of what it was like for you back in the day when all this was first beginning to open for you? Uh, it was great, <laughs> and it was weird, and it was hard, um, vulnerable, and intense at times. I mean, I was very young when I left home, 17, right after I graduated high school, 
and moved to New York and I didn't know I didn't know myself or what I wanted or what I believed. I didn't have much of an education except high school and yet thrust in an environment that was creative and challenging. New York in the eighties was just a little rougher. I didn't have any money and I didn't have a lot of guidance and uh yet I had so much curiosity and openness and New York is definitely a place that can indulge that that interest, you know, inside or it can squash you. And I was really fortunate that a lot of different kinds of teachers showed up um during that time that helped give me information and insight and uh just gently prodded me so that I could make decent enough choices to survive and hopefully in time make really good choices to thrive, which ultimately is what I did. And so uh, it was just a very unique time, one I wouldn't trade for anything. Mm. And you're very open and honest in in the book uh, about all these things that happened. And you also share with us teachings from Sharon Gannon and and David Life, who are friends of our program and uh, wonderful, inspiring yogis in their own right. I, I love that you left home so early and came to the big city because I moved from Kansas City, Missouri to London on my 18th birthday. And I'd read a little bit about yoga before I got there, but it was in in London where I found my first teacher. And I don't know how long it would have taken had I not just made that break. So I think um, young people who (laughs) take off into the world get some kind of help from the universe. So I'm interested, Sean, you talk about starting out as a yoga class misfit. And I've looked at you for years and just thought she couldn't be a misfit anywhere. This woman is absolutely gorgeous and vibrant. So talk about feeling like a misfit, even when you don't look like one. Yeah. um, When I moved to New York City, I got right away, I had anxiety growing up um, and it, it, it showed up in a lot of different kinds of ways. And as I talk about in the book, my anxiety was the result of childhood sexual trauma. And so the way in which I self-soothed was through um, what's called patterning, um, obsessive compulsive disorder behaviors, doing things in the numbers fours and eights. And it was attached to all sorts of superstitions. Like I knew that if I touched things, blinked, walked into walls certain numbers of times, that I could control my environment and control my body. And so – Outwardly, though, I didn't look like someone who exhibited anxiety. I didn't look like someone who had obsessive-compulsive disorder. You know, I, I wore the, the I, I carried with me the privileges of being able-bodied, of being um, just a blue-eyed, blonde, white girl, and you know, pretty enough that I could get away with things from the outside. You might. Uh, make assumptions about someone like me, yet internally I had a lot of trauma and not a lot of support and didn't know how to manage the big feelings that I had. And so I always felt, um, you know, try too hard, laugh too loud, just uh, 
gave away my power a lot, compromised myself sexually just to get approval and uh, validation. You know, the things you do when you're that young and that insecure. And I was really, really fortunate in that when I came to New York City, I, like you mentioned, Sharon and David, I happened to get a job at Life Cafe and that was owned by David and Sharon was a waitress there. They were doing yoga at that time and I I was doing drugs to try to self-soothe from the anxiety that I felt. And uh, they would talk about the benefits of yoga and alternative uh, lifestyles, including veganism. And I was both curious and also really put off um, because I just didn't have a lot of examples in my life of where a change in lifestyle made a difference, not not in the 80s. And, yeah, I was really inspired by David and Sharon, and I paid attention even though I didn't practice. But they planted seeds, and the my OCD behaviors were starting to get worse, and the drugs and the alcohol were no longer working to mask that discomfort. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll give this yoga thing a shot and see what that feels like. And so when I first came to a yoga studio, you know, at at that time it wasn't mainstream, and yoga was split up in um, different systems. And I was going to, I went to a studio that was a Shivananda studio, you know, everyone was wearing white, and there was something really austere, prayerful, and somber about the environment. And, you know, I walk in with, Having worked in nightclubs, you know, I've been up all night. I got mascara and eyeliner smeared still under my eyes. My hair is just a naughty mess. Um, I don't, not wearing white. Uh, I just feel completely out of place. Um, you know, I, I, my, my, I just didn't. I'm not a serene by nature. I'm direct and straightforward. I say immediately, you know, what I'm, what, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and I felt that I was too coarse around the edges to fit into that environment. And yet I kept going, I kept coming back. Something was calling me to the practice, even though it was so hard for my body at first, made me sick as a dog, literally. I threw up my first class um, as I share in the book. And, and yet I just kept coming on the mat because the more I would do it, the anxiety shifted. I learned how to manage uh, my um, self-soothing behaviors and eventually stopped drinking, doing drugs, smoking cigarettes, and and giving up meat. And, uh, um, you know, at that time, all of that was a direct result of getting on the mat even when I felt different. And so, again, outwardly, you know, I don't think anyone would look at me and think that I had challenges. But internally, um, I struggled a lot. Plus, I was also, I didn't have a, I had a very... Um, superstitious and negative relationship with God. So everything I did was about controlling my environment and essentially playing God because I felt that the world was very unsafe. And yet you found in it something that you call everyday angels. Tell us about yours and how we can find some. They're everywhere. That's the thing. You don't have to, there's not a matter of finding them. They're everywhere. My angels showed up sometimes, sometimes in ways that were really extraordinary as real mentorship, guidance. Other times they show up as the person that breaks your heart, your heart as the, the event that drops you to your knees. 
there's not a single moment, single experience, or a single person that's not holding up a mirror to you to show you the places within yourself that is disconnected from your own grace. And each of these beings doesn't mean you have to stay with them or have lunch with them um, or hang out with them. (laughs) But in time, you do have to love them because they were the ones who taught you self-love and patience and acceptance and hopefully forgiveness for self and other um, and bring, help bring you back into wholeness and teach you the power of empathy um, as, an, as an exceptional tool that will ultimately help heal this planet. But until we develop it within ourselves, then it's hard to see it in others. And so my angel showed up, uh, I mean, David and Sharon, most certainly, my first yoga teacher, but also the boyfriend that broke my heart, also the person who, my, my original molester, uh, all of these people, uh, I, I have to find a way within my soul to find gratitude for the events as they were and are, not thinking that they should be different, because you can't change what is, but you can certainly change your perception. And through the work of yoga and meditation and therapy and the program and other tools, it can help you, A, first feel the feelings because that's critical, but then reframe the narrative so that you can, you can experience those moments in time through a more illuminated lens. But not too quickly. Too often in our community, um, there's bypass where I can tell you how I feel, but I don't actually have to feel it. And in the work that I support is like, no, you feel the animal energy. You feel the anger and the rage and the shame and the guilt because that's all it is is energy. And once you can move past that suppression, it can lead to surrender, which opens us to our vulnerability, which connects us to love. And so the angels are everywhere. It's really within us to be willing to let go of our own ego and to allow ourselves to see a bigger picture to why things happen as they do. Wow, that is so beautiful. So you see, everybody, why you just have to get this book, Merry Christmas to Yourself, Revolution of the Soul, <laughs> Sean Corn. So, Sean, when you went vegetarian way back in the 80s, when that was a strange thing to do, what was the catalyst that led you to that? Well, you know, I had heard about it, like I said, with Sharon and David, they talked about it all the time. When I first worked at Life Cafe, it was not a vegetarian restaurant. Um, and but then David and Sharon got more and more into their practice, and they made a real commitment to change the menu at a time when this was not popular. And on Avenue B and 10th Street you know, in New York City, this was not a popular decision. And yet they couldn't compromise their own beliefs, so they started removing things from the menu. And I had a real issue with it. Like I felt really put out. Like how dare they tell me what I can and cannot put in my mouth. And, you know, I was raised in an environment where, you know, you, you did what everyone else did. And we weren't sensitized to the idea that meat was, an, was actually animals. They were like nuggets or bacon or beef, not muscle and fat and bone and, and what they actually are, you know, beings. So there's a disconnect within myself. Well, one day I was uh, at a friend's house, and they had on their coffee table this book called, I think it's called In the, America, In the American West by Richard Avedon. And it was black and white photographs of um, Midwestern working folk uh, really just doing their jobs. And as I'm flipping through it, I come across a photograph that 
stopped me in my tracks and truly changed the trajectory of my life and certainly the way in which I was going to approach my diet and my relationship with animals. It was a photograph of a person wearing coveralls, like overalls, and this person was a factory farmer. And they were they put over their own head the freshly slaughtered head of a cow. Um, so there's blood dripping down their shoulders, down their coveralls. And over their own head was replaced this face, this face that clearly had just experienced unimaginable trauma and pain and suffering. The eyes were open. The tongue was hanging out. And all of a sudden it struck me that this, I'm looking at this animal on a human body, and I'm thinking this is an animal that loves, that grieves, that had a family, that had only known that new imprisonment, and if that was never okay for a human being, then how could this be okay for an animal? And I remember getting really emotional looking at this image, and it really bore itself into my head, and I made the decision then to stop eating red meat. Red meat was first for me. I I, I guess I was, I knew enough at that time that I was going to have to figure out how to wean, like detox myself on a lot of different levels. Like if I went cold turkey, if you will, <laughs> um, I don't think I could have done it uh, the right way for me. So I stopped first with red meat and could never, and I've never eaten red meat again. Then it was, I had to like really get my head around, well, well, what's the difference between a cow and a chicken and wean myself off the chicken. Then it was fish and you know, it took maybe the course of a year or so before I was able to kind of like get all of that out of my system and lose the taste for it, the addiction. Like it's really an addiction. And I don't think it's an addiction to necessarily the meat itself. It's addiction to the additives. It's also an addiction to the traditions and self-soothing. You know, food for me was very familial. Coming from a, a Polish family, there's certain food like kabasi. You know, it's like, oh, you're sad? Here's, you know, kabasi. Here's pierogies. That would represent comfort. I had to wean myself off of that psychosis, if you will. And then it cheese and dairy, I had to get my, that out of my system. And the final frontier for me was letting go of, of leather products and, uh, you know, purses, shoes, you know, anything like, uh, of that, um, and getting all of that out of my life. And... The only reason I wasn't able to commit to veganism earlier um, when it finally, finally I became a full-on vegan was only because I traveled so much for work. And finding vegan food in Kansas City, for example. Or, <laughs> My hometown. <laughs> yeah. You know, back in the, in the early 90s, you know, in the late 80s, in the early 90s, you know, during that time when I became a teacher and was traveling the country teaching, finding food in hotels that didn't have cheese in them was really hard. I would get iceberg lettuce with like shaved carrots and that's what I'd have to sustain myself on. And now it's different. I, I don't have that experience anymore at all. Like the, the, the commerce is, is catching on and people are more committed to their veganism and I have more access, whether it's hotels or small cities or even diners, of getting actually food that is nurturing um, 
and that I don't have to, that are vegan and that I can sustain myself on. And so I was able to fully go vegan in 2010. Um, I'd be vegan here in Los Angeles, but I'd have to make those compromises when I'd go on the road, but no more. That, that's just not my, that's not my way anymore. And, uh, and the reason I was so happy to be on your program is because, oddly, you would think in my community that veganism would be um, so commonplace, but it's not. And you'd also think that there'd be more opportunities for me to speak about it, but there hasn't been. Uh, for whatever reason, a lot of vegan companies, uh, uh, podcasts, uh, magazines, haven't reached out to me to talk about my commitment to veganism. And um, that's why I'm really happy that you reached out, because I know how important this conversation is and the alignment that it has with yoga, and that as one of the very few spokespeople for veganism in the yoga community, I want this this message and this intersection of yoga and veganism to be heard far and wide. So thank you. So that's really my journey. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, I'm certainly going to put a word in <laughs> with everybody I know in the vegan world of podcasts and uh, publications, because the book is so beautiful. And you have such an amazing following out there in the world where the vegan message needs to get as well. So that's a match made in heaven. So why do you think, Sean, that at least vegetarianism is not a great big deal in yoga? I mean, we know that Veganism is, is a step even for yoga because it came from India and there's the dairy tradition. But in recent years, so many yoga teachers have said to me, well, we don't have to be vegetarian anymore. And my thought was always, well, we never had to be. It's right. just if you want to do this right. So what yeah. happened? You know, yoga became very mainstream. It, the focus is on yoga asana. And not mm -hmm. really looking at the text or the traditions or the pathway itself. If more teachers were committed to the eight limbs of yoga and really adhered to the yamas and the niyamas as a lifestyle and as, as, a, um, a, as defining principles of yoga, I think that the students would be more apt to take it seriously themselves and their own path. But I don't think enough teachers have that commitment. Now, what gives me hope, though, is that, you know, for me, yoga was very physical at first. It took me a while before I made the connection, um, you know, between my, my physical and psychological and emotional health and wellness and animal rights and really understood it. So I don't want to discount the years that I was doing asana as like those years were somehow bad or flawed, they opened me to look around and think like, oh, I'm saying we are one, and yet I'm not acting like it. I'm saying I believe in ahimsa, and yet my diet is telling me otherwise. Like suddenly I was like, wait a second, there's some hypocrisy here that I have to confront, which is part of the yoga practice also, this, this idea of self-study. And... So I really do believe that right now in the mainstream, I'm glad people are on the mat. I'm glad they're moving and they're breathing. But I'm also hopeful that as they continue to heal individually and recognize that for them to be free, we all have to be free and that our liberation is bound and that we have a responsibility then to make the connection between ourselves and 
the physical world, and that includes our animal friends, and that there's no separation, and that we become the problem when we commit to that level of denialism. And so I'm hopeful that I want people to keep doing their yoga, keep making Mm -hmm. the personal changes, because inevitably I hope that as they become a little bit more sophisticated and broaden their understanding of yoga, that eventually vegetarianism and veganism will become second nature. I think that most people that are out there doing yoga, even though physically they might, you might look at them and think they're advanced, I think emotionally, psychologically, they're still beginners on the path and haven't yet understood that, the, the necessary through line. And uh, so it's important for more senior teachers like myself to be committed to it, talk about it, and make the connection between veganism and um, the principles of yoga, which I do in the book. And, you know, and I don't do it ad nauseum, but I make it very clear, you know, I, that, that that's, that's what ahimsa is. It's do no harm, and there's really no, there's no excuses around it. It's if you are committed to your diet, it's because of habit, it's because of perhaps uh, conditioning, um, ignorance, laziness um, are some of the factors, or that you've bought into certain myths that you can't get certain nutrients uh, in a plant-based diet, which is just not true. It does require more education. That's sure. That's for sure. Like it was, it was work figuring out how do I get, how do I get my enzymes, how do I get my protein, but it's all there. It's just, it's like it's easier to be like, you know what, forget it, just give me a McDonald's. Um, but again, that's, it's just conditioning and laziness. And I'm hoping that by modeling what it looks like and providing people with resources, they can begin to supplement that burger with beyond meat, and start to break these habits for themselves and see the connection, the inevitable connection, between yoga and animal rights if you truly believe in unity. I love that. I think people can say that who espouse any religion, any kind of uplifting life philosophy, but yoga for sure because it's in the yoga tradition. The ahimsa is there. I can't believe that our time is almost up. I could talk to you forever, but instead I'll just finish reading your book. The website, everybody, is Sean Corn, S-E-A-N-E-C-O-R-N. She is Sean Corn Yoga on Twitter and Sean Corn on Instagram. And we will put all of that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. The book, Revolution of the Soul, Awaken to Love, Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. Thank you, Sean Corn. That was absolutely delightful and uplifting. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Everybody, thank you. Stay with us. We're going to be back with the joyful vegan, Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Stay with us. I'm Diane Ray, Program Director for Unity Online Radio. And from all of us at unityonlineradio.org, thanks for your support and for helping us grow this year. We wish you a joyous holiday season. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody, and wishing you the happiest of holidays if you're listening live or almost live. And I hope that Santa comes through with just what you want most this year for yourself and for the world we live in. I do have a gift suggestion you may want to give yourself in the new year if you're a vegan activist or someone with a vegan business. And it is Katrina Fox's course, Vegans in the Limelight which teaches you everything you need to know about getting your message out into the world. I know it's sometimes really frustrating for us. We've got something we want people to know or see or comprehend or try out, and it's hard sometimes to get it here. Well, Katrina, who is a veteran journalist and a PR professional, knows all about all of that. She's the author of Vegan Ventures, the host of the Vegan Business Talk podcast, and you can learn all about the Vegans in the Limelight course at tinyurl.com slash PR4Vegans, PR numeral four vegans. And we'll put that, of course, on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And we'll also have information there about both of today's guests, of course. And speaking of guests, I'm so happy to be introducing our wonderful final guest of 2019, and she is somebody that everybody likes a lot, Colleen Patrick Gaudreau. Known as the Joyful Vegan, Colleen has guided countless individuals through the process of becoming vegan, and now in her seventh book, The Joyful Vegan, she shares her insights into why some people stay vegan and others stop. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks, Victoria. Good to hear your voice. Well, it's a pleasure to hear your voice. I know you're talking with us from France, leading uh, one of the wonderful tours that you do. Uh, What's the company that you do those through? So World Vegan Travel. Yeah, World Vegan Travel is amazing. And uh, check them out for more trips with uh, Colleen and other people that you know and love. So... People stop being vegan. Why? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that's a big question. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So people do stop being vegan. And there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> that's why I wrote the book. Um, and, and the book is not just about those who stop being vegan. It's really about how to help people stay vegan, but also help people stay joyfully vegan. You know, most of us do this because it feels good when we stop eating animals, whether we're doing it for health reasons, whether we're doing it for ethical reasons, spiritual reasons, environmental reasons. We do it because it aligns with our values and that feels good and it should feel good. And yet what starts to happen, especially once you've become vegan and you start to see everything around you and you start to feel overwhelmed and you start to tell people how excited you are about being vegan and nobody wants to hear about it or your family doesn't change or they're defensive or hostile, whatever it is. Over time, could be a short amount of time, could be a while, uh, people start to feel, you know, know, jaded or frustrated or angry or sad or overwhelmed or all of these emotions. So it's about how do we sustain that feeling of, you know, of purpose, 
of, of compassion for ourselves, of compassion for the animals, but also compassion for those around us and not just feel constantly bombarded, not just with hostility, because it doesn't necessarily mean that we're constantly you know, meeting people or encountering family members who are hostile, but just coping with the overwhelming feeling of, 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 you know, of how, of how big this issue is. And so that's what this is about. And, and those are, and so I'm kind of touching on some of the reasons people do stop being vegan. And some of it does have to do with that, that feeling of, of being overwhelmed by how, how, how large this issue is. Uh, and, 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 and I'll, I can give you a leading answer. Uh, some of it really does have to do with our social, uh, engagements with people. And, uh, and we really are social creatures. And I think we underestimate how much it means to us to fit in and to conform and to be with people who are like-minded. And I think that's some of what happens uh, for people who just don't want to stick out from the crowd. And I think they, they just want to fit in. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to for a lot of people. Oh, I completely agree because people won't tell you that, you know, they'll always say, well, I right. just felt tired or I lost weight or I gained weight or <laughs> something happened. Mm -hmm. But when you get underneath, you find out that that other stuff may or may not have happened or may have happened a little bit. But the real reason is the boyfriend or the coworkers or, or somebody is just making it difficult. And I love the thing that you said about how really big this is. It's not just like going on some kind of diet. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you see? How big is it? And are we asking people more than a lot of people can truly do? That's a really good question. I think whether or not I say yes or no, I think what we have to understand is that it is a big deal for people. And I know that a lot of you know, vegans with good intentions and big hearts hear about people who stop being vegan or who struggle with being vegan. And often their first response is, well, I don't understand. I didn't have that problem. I don't understand. What's the big deal? I just did it. And you know what, if you don't care, you know, if you cared about the animals enough, you wouldn't be bothered by someone just giving you grief about being vegan. That's not okay. And that's not going to solve the issue. The bottom line is it is a big deal for people. It is a big deal for people who, who don't feel that they fit in. It is a big deal for people to stick out from the crowd, whether or not you are one of the people for whom it's a big deal. That's not the point. The point is that it is a big deal for other people. And so is it, is it asking too much? Well, I think there's a lot to say. I think no. I mean, ultimately, we're all asking ourselves to do what we think is the, the, the right thing to do. Uh, and I think what I've noticed over the years that I've been doing this work is that if you give people the tools and some skills to be more comfortable being in their vegan skin, that is speaking up for what they want, framing their the, their decision to be vegan in a way that doesn't necessarily intimidate people or at least doesn't set out to intimidate people. Uh, so finding your voice, finding your place, being able to, to speak up for what you believe in without being attached to how other people take it, being able to say like, yeah, yeah what I'm doing is a little different than everybody else, but that's okay. A lot of that just has to do with kind of basic human psychology, whether you're vegan or not. And that's what I'm excited by is that, 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 none of this is a mystery. The reason I wrote this book is for vegans who say, I don't understand why people who stop 
being vegan, stop being vegan. Or the book is for people who say, I'm really struggling and I feel bad that I'm struggling. Or, you know, I just want to be happier being vegan. So, so the, so there are actual things we can do to answer all of those things. And that's what I'm excited by is that, is it too much to ask of people? I don't think anything is too much to ask of people. If it's coming from an authentic place where they really want to do the right thing, it just might mean we need to learn some new skills and do things a little differently Mm. than we did before. Right. And that will then help us feel like we're on more secure ground. Cause I think that's where people really struggle. If they feel that they're on shaky ground or they can't talk about it, or they're afraid to say anything about it. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how to interact with, with people in their new vegan, veganness. Uh, I think that's the stuff that people struggle with, but there are ways to get around that. And there are skills we can learn to, to do better. Well, it seems to me reading your book that the basic core skill is to be a joyful vegan instead of an angry vegan. And so you have a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful list here in the middle of your book of, of mm. the qualities of the angry vegan versus the joyful vegan. I'm not going to even say the words for the angry vegan because, you know, it's Christmas time. But I'll say some right. of, of the uh, joyful <laughs> vegan. You say that the joyful vegan supports, communicates, attracts, inspires, listens. That's a huge win guides, unites, influences, motivates. The joyful vegan, you say, is provocative. So how can we nurture these kinds of qualities in ourselves as vegans to uplift those who are not yet vegan or who are a little bit shaky in it? Mm -hmm. I think it starts with, well, I think it starts with making a decision I think all of the ways we are in this world really depends on how we want to be, who we want to be, what we focus on and what we pay attention to, what we put our energy into. You know, people ask me a lot how I have hope and why I have hope and how I hold that hope. And my answer is I choose to, you know, you can decide at any given moment to look at how bad things are. But you could also decide to look at any given moment to see how much hope there is and how many good things are happening in this world. It is our choice. Both things are true. There is bad in this world and there is good in this world. And we can decide which one we want to focus on. It doesn't mean it's about being Pollyanna. It doesn't mean about denying what's bad. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean denial or disillusionment. It means what do we want to focus on? And that for me is what, where I put my energies and what I can solve, what I can do, how I can help, you know, what my service is, right? That doesn't mean I don't get angry. And I, and I, it's so important to say that because it doesn't mean I'm denying anger and it doesn't mean that people can't be angry or shouldn't be angry. It's that we cultivate anger and we have to choose whether we want to cultivate anger or cultivate joy and cultivate hope. So that to me is, is really the foundation is what, what, what do you want to be? What do you want to focus on? And then I really do think a lot of it has to do with intention. I mean, coming from that place of who do you want to be and how do you want to be? Uh, you know, what's your intention when you talk to people? Is your intention to be right? Is your intention to be effective? Is your intention to be, you know, you said provocative. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with being provocative and provoking people into a new way of thinking, but that's different than being combative. So it's really walking this line. And, and as I said, what I find exciting about it is that it's, those are skills and you get really good at them. And the only way you get good at them is by practicing. So even to answer your question, being a joyful vegan is about practicing being a joyful vegan. 
So how do you deal when you see fellow vegans who are absolutely well-meaning doing things that would appear to some of those of us who see things perhaps in a bit more of a traditional way or perhaps a, a bit less combative way, doing things that seem to do more harm than good, even though there's great well-meaning intent behind it? What do you do within yourself, Colleen Patrick Goudreau? Okay, well, that's that's a that's a good question because I was about to say there's nothing I can do publicly if no one's asking my opinion about what they should do differently. But what do I do myself? Is you know I always you know my husband always says it's true. We we judge our you know we we judge ourselves by our uh, intentions, but we judge others by their actions, right? Ooh. So I try to look at right, and we do that, right? We you know we cut into someone in line, and it's because you know well we we're late and we have something really important to get to, and we have to cut in line, right? We we judge our ourselves by our intentions. Someone else cuts in line and we just say, that's a horrible, rude thing. How could they do that? Right. (laughs) So, um, so I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and judge them by their intentions and just know that it's coming from a good place. And, and I really do, you know, try to do that. I also don't pay attention to a lot of the anger. I do kind of, that's not where I put my energy and I don't have time for it. And I don't invite, I don't allow it to stay on in, in my space, whether that's my actual space in my home, the interactions I have with people uh, online or offline. So I don't really allow it to fester in any way. Uh, but I want to pay attention enough to know where it's coming from. And, uh, and so I, I do that much. But honestly, what I then do is really just focus on what I think is the most effective thing to do for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I surround myself with joyful people. I surround myself with effective advocates. I surround myself by kind people who have the best intentions as well, but who also manifest them in their behavior. And I do think that affects how we are as advocates and as human beings, who we surround ourselves with, who challenges us. If we surround ourselves with people who are always going to agree with us, or I'm not to say that we all, I mean, we all do surround ourselves with people who, you know, are like-minded, you know, even, you know, microcosms within being vegan. I mean, you know, people who are kind of politically minded like us and, you know, who like to do the same things we do. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but, but it's really easy to, to, to support behavior or to feel our behavior is the right thing if no one's really saying, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with that, right? So I don't know. I just, we just, I'm just really grateful to be around a lot of very positive, good um, people. And I think that makes a difference because we can very easily slip into not so great behavior if no one's holding us accountable. Yeah. yeah and and so I don't know that yeah. there's a, another way to do it. Right, so um, right. When you started out in your vegan work, you were doing a lot of cooking and baking and recipes and things like that. And now you're really seen much more as a philosopher. And and you came up with this joyful vegan concept. So how did that evolve and result in this book? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, the cooking has always been just a conduit to be able to address all of these issues. I mean, my cooking, cooking classes in the early days was a way to be able to give people the tools and skills they needed to cook healthfully and to cook without animal products and to do it well and to enjoy it for sure. That was absolutely one of my intentions. But the other intention was to be able to create a very safe space for people to, for us to be able to talk about these deeper issues, uh, around animals and compassion and violence and so my cooking classes would always be philosophical. I mean, you know, when someone asked about 
you know, cow's milk. That was the time to be able, I, I could talk about these issues uh, and what we do to, to dairy cows and, and the violence, you know, that's inherent in the slaughter industry, but in a way that was very safe. Uh, because, you know, I'd be, you know, I'd be able to say what I wanted to say. And then, and then we fry some onions and then we're going to fill your bellies. And, you know, <laughs> so it was very positive. So, so although this has now, obviously I'm, I'm not doing cookbooks. Uh, I, I've always been moving in that direction. And even if you read my cookbooks, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot to, uh, to see in the, in the books as well. So it's just for me, a, dist- a distillation of it uh, without the cooking. Just, I've had a lot to say about a lot of these issues for a long time. And I'm proud of my cookbooks and I'll probably someday do something else, um, with, with some food, but, uh, but I, I just feel like this really needed to be said. I've been hearing from people for, you know, my podcast is going on 14 years and I've wow. been hearing from people for a long time about their struggles. And I pay attention because I really want to get to the heart of why people struggle, why people stop being vegan, uh, why people stop, don't become vegan in the first place. It's not just why do we stop being vegan? It's why, why do we not become vegan when our core is compassion for, I believe most of us, non-vegans and vegans, the core is compassion. And so why, why is it that we resist becoming vegan, which to me is the ultimate manifestation of, of compassion. And so I, I, I've just been thinking about this for a long time and wanted to just put it into one book to help vegans understand it about themselves, but also about everybody else around them. Well, you do a beautiful job, The Joyful Vegan, How to Stay Vegan in a World that Wants You to Eat Meat, Dairy, and Eggs. So Colleen, what about somebody who is vegan, but they put all this pressure on themselves to be the perfect vegan? Any help for that person? Well, my mantra about veganism is what I hope helps people not focus on perfection. And that is that being vegan is not an end in itself. That the goal is not to be as vegan as we can be. That being vegan is a means to an end. The end is unconditional compassion and optimal wellness. And so vegan is the means to get there, but it's not the the goal. If you think being vegan is the end, is the goal, is the badge, then you get hung up on being perfect. And so once you shift your thinking about what being vegan is, that like I said, it's a manifestation of who you are. It is not, you are not just this one thing. Um, then, then I think it's a lot easier to just relax a little bit. And that doesn't mean relax and just eat animal products. It means it's not about being perfect and it's not about being pure because that's not the point the, you know, I've been saying lately, and I think people understand it when I say this, I'm not kosher. Like this isn't about (laughs) rules, right? This isn't about like, I'm not trying to meet dietary rules. I mean, that's what kosher is. There's rules that people follow and, and it's, you know, it's, as part of, part of this larger, you know, religion, but there's very specific food laws and food rules that you follow. That's not what being vegan is. And that when you just relax a little bit and step back and keep in mind what it means to be vegan and why you're vegan in the first place, 
you just realize like that, like you're going to eat an animal product by mistake. You're going to see animal products around you that the, the, the tires in our cars have animal products, that water in the municipal systems are filtered with animal products. But that's not the point. Like I, if we get hung up on that, we will drive ourselves crazy. And we do, we see it, we see it happen where we become so obsessed with low level aspects of it that become about dogma and doctrine and rules and laws. That's not that for me, it, it, it misses the entire point and it makes you miserable. And I've seen it. And I think it also um, turns people off. I think people are less inclined to be part of something that is so rigid and so unforgiving. That's not attractive to people. And it's also not just not realistic. So that to me is why, is why it just keep, you know, keep repeating that mantra that being vegan is not an end. It's a means to an end. Mm. Beautiful. So Colleen, in addition to being known as the joyful vegan, you're also known as this very word perfect person. Oh my gosh, word perfect. That was an old program years ago, but you do (laughs) believe that words matter. And I want to ask you about words like vegan, vegetarian, plant-based, which do you like, or do you like different ones in different circumstances? I do like different ones in different circumstances. Sometimes I still say vegetarian just as a way to kind of introduce it to a stranger might be in a, you know, in a restaurant, it might be, but I mean, I, I don't end there. It's usually kind of the beginning and it, you, and I, I do it in a context and an opportunity to say vegetarian. They go, Oh, and I go actually vegan and they go, Oh, but the vegetarian gives them kind of a first thing to hang on to. That's often when I'm talking to strangers and, st- you know, in a store or something like that. It's not that often, but vegan, uh, for me, vegan means something. I, you know, I obviously embrace the word vegan. I've been using it <laughs> for a long time in every one of my books. Uh, and, uh, and it means something to me. And I, I think it is a, 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 a word that again, distills for me the point of what it is, uh, which is the, the manifestation of our deepest values. When I became vegan and, and, and I, as I've said, and I said in the book, I, I, for me, like I unpack a little bit in the book, what does it mean to become vegan, right? We, we talk about a, a seed becoming a flower and a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, but what does it mean to become vegan? Like, what did I become when I became vegan? And for me, I didn't become something different when I became vegan. What happened is that I removed the blocks to the compassion that were already inside of me, and it was a full flowering and a full manifestation of my deepest values. That is what being vegan means to me. And that's what, and I love that. And so that, so I use that. I do tend to use plant-based when I'm talking about food, because I do think about veganism as more philosophical uh, as me identifying as a vegan person. I don't talk about food as being vegan because I feel like that puts onto food a label that makes it seem like it's different from other food that makes it sound like it's a different food group. Uh, And I've, joked about this before. Like we don't eat vegan bananas, like they're bananas. Like if we talk about food so that it sounds so different and like it's a separate thing, like there's, you know, vegan food over here and regular food over here. And we do use that language. A lot of us use that language, normal, regular, right. Versus, you know, vegan. It just, to me, creates that dichotomy. So I don't tend to talk about food itself as vegan food. I tend to talk about it as, as plants or plant-based or, or whatever it is the food is. So, okay. so it does really depend on the context and the situation. 
Well, whatever you're talking about, you say it beautifully, and you have so many wonderful little pull-out quotations in this book. Are those available as cards or something, or do we yeah, just get Yeah, thanks to- for asking. Yeah, on I, joyfulvegan.com, I actually. Yeah, on joyfulvegan.com, we have all of um, we have a number of pull quotes in really nice shareable uh, uh, quote cards, so people can oh, just so see nice. them. Yeah. These are lovely. I mean, I, I would just, if, if I were feeling a little bit anxious on a day or thinking I wasn't up to the task, to just pull out the Joyful Vegan and just leaf through and, and see wonderful quotations from Colleen, like, animals don't need us to be as distressed as they are. They need us to transcend our distress so that we can successfully end theirs. That is absolutely profound, not to mention beautiful. So tell us, Colleen, you've written another dynamite book. This is just a beautiful work. What's your writing process? Tell us how you are as a writer. Mm. I dump a lot. I'm constantly putting things on Google Docs and writing or journals or something. I'm constantly, constantly doing that. And then I, and then I start uh I just start um, putting it together like a puzzle and um, start categorizing it and putting it into paragraphs. I will, I could spend, uh, I could spend an hour on a sentence, uh, which gets a little obsessive, um, but I want it, you know, to convey exactly what I want to convey. Uh, And then, you know, there's lots of editing and lots of rereading. I do read it out loud. Um, And so, yeah, I, I am definitely someone who constantly works on the text and when I'm done, I'm done. But but I but I do do a lot of uh, just kind of free writing and then uh, kind of piecing it all together like like I said like kind of putting it together like a puzzle. Ah, in our last twenty seconds, give us uh, a wish for this year ahead. Oh, <laughs> oh, my wish is that we could focus on the energy of the people who agree with us and not worry so much about the people who don't agree with us. Take all the energy of the people who agree with us and are passionate about compassion and go forward and do the work that needs to be done. That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Colleen Patrick Goudreau. The book is The Joyful Vegan. And thanks to you, my wonderful listeners, and to Unity Online Radio for yet another year of this program. May it be your best year ever. Be happy, be healthy. Be blessed. Be vegan. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.